What's up, guys? This is Shiragam, and I want to welcome you to episode 43 of the Hashishin, presented by Rosin Evolution, where you can visit at rosinevolution.com. As always, thank you for tuning in. On today's episode, we'll hear from Brian of Black Ram Farms, based out of Eugene, Oregon. We talk about the different challenges an outdoor farmer faces during a season and how those challenges can change from year to year. We learn a little about how and why he became interested in hash why he's so passionate about making high-grade hash and much more. So definitely stay tuned for that. I'm super excited about our event, The Smoking Jacket, a two-day live immersive hash experience taking place on September 16th and 17th in Los Angeles, California. You can follow the new Instagram at THI Smoking Jacket to find out more details. One of the things I'm personally most excited about is recording the podcast in front of a live audience for the first time with very special return guest, Ozzy the Cuban Grower, which will also include a Q&A segment from the audience. Our hash panels called Resin Talks are going to feature some of the most respected names in hash, including Third Gen Family Farms, 710 Labs, Cuban Grower, The Real Cannabis Chris, Simply Adam, and many more. So join us and be part of this two-day event, which will be capped by a friendly competition on the second day. Only five competitor spots and 15 general admission tickets are left. We hope to see you at the Smoking Jacket on September 16th and 17th in Los Angeles, California. Shout out to everyone who makes up our community on Patreon for their support. It is through their support that we're able to continue bringing you episodes. If you would ever like to support the podcast, grab some stickers or receive the same shirt that guests do, visit us at patreon.com backslash the hashish in that's the hashish inn visit the link via our instagram bio at the hashish in or our website the hashishin.com shout out to another big reason we're able to keep bringing you the podcast our awesome sponsors including our main sponsor rosin evolution the best bags in the game who again you can visit at rosinevolution.com or on instagram at rosinevolution100 they're known and trusted for their reliability, whether you're using their wash bags to make hash or their rosin bags to press hash. Make sure you're setting yourself up for success by using rosin evolution bags like many of the top makers in the nation. If you need anything to make rosin, go to rosinevolution.com. They're always in stock of what you need. They have the friendliest customer service around and they hook you up with an additional 5% off your entire purchase by using our savings code, the letters THI, the number 710. Again, THI 710 altogether saves you 5% at rosinevolution.com. Shout out to our homies and sponsors, Powers Plates, the small batch rosin press company, who you can visit at powersplates.com. They're the highest grade plates on the market because they're made of the highest quality components on the market. If you're the type of craftsman who values having the best tools possible and you're looking for a rosin press, then look no further. You'll find it on Instagram at Powers Plates. They still have a few of their artistic series designs left as well as their original design in their sleek gold and black finish. So you'll not only have the nicest looking plates, but the highest grade plates as well. You can grab your favorite hash makers, favorite hash makers rosin press at powersplates.com and save $75 off any Powers Plate system by using our exclusive savings code, the letters THI. Shout out to Six Star Society, your self-enlist apparel company, who you can visit at sixstarsociety.com 
where you can find everything you need to show your love for the resin. Whether you're looking for a t-shirt, a hoodie, sweatpants, or a jacket, they've got you covered. They come up with fresh new designs all the time, most of which end up selling out since they only make small batches. So if you like one of their designs, make sure to grab it while you can. Whether it's their full melt line, their Hashem line, all their gear stands true to their name, six star. It's well-made, super comfortable, and made for people who love hash. So if you or someone you know loves hash, then visit sixstarsociety.com or on Instagram at the number six underscore star underscore society and find the perfect item to show your love for the resin. And don't forget to save 5% on your entire purchase by using THI at sixstarsociety.com. And last but never least, shout out to Rocky Mountain Seed Bank, who you can visit at rockymountainhigh719.org, where they've made a great addition to the site, making cuts available for those wanting a killer pheno who may not have the time or resources to hunt. Now Rocky is providing you options of finding ways to secure biogenetics for your garden. If you're looking to hunt and you're looking for hashers, they have a solid lineup of reputable breeders like Bloom Seed Co., aka Harry Palms, as well as their newly added Terp Fountain Genetics. Both their drops have sold out super fast, so don't miss out on that next round, as well as a variety of other genetics from legends like Dominion Seed Co., in-house genetics, Capulator, as well as Rocky's own stock. So if you're looking for fire genetics from a reputable seed bank, go to rockymountainhigh719.org, find something that intrigues you, at checkout, type in our savings code, the letters T-H-I. It'll save you 25% off your entire order. Yes, that includes cuts. That's a quarter off your entire order at rockymountainhigh719.org by using the letters T-H-I at checkout. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome to episode 43 of the Hashishin. I'm your host, Shragam Amir. Today, I'm stoked to be here with Brian of Black Ram Farms, based out of Eugene, Oregon. You can follow him on Instagram at black underscore ram underscore farms. What's up, Brian? How are you? Thanks for coming on for a second time, dude. Yeah, for sure, Sarag. I'm glad to be here. Doing good. How are you doing? I'm doing pretty good, dude, as well. I appreciate you asking. So I saw that you recently were at DFO, which honestly is an event that I didn't really even know what it was until earlier this year, but I know you've seemed to be going for a while. So tell us a little bit about your experience this year. Oh man, where to start? Shoot. They did it at this new spot called Zydale Yard uh, in Portland. So it's basically like this giant hangar. So they had all these booths lined out and then um, there was blowing. And then on the other side, outside, there's a big old kind of like shakedown lot and food and all that so it was, it was super nice concessions and area yeah just all the the competitions and blowing was was amazing just always fun to go there and see everybody and yeah it's just a big old party basically what were some of the artists that you were excited to see or some of the collabs that you mentioned basically all of them man like they just all were super cool like the jfl and the pinky one was super cool the sheen murdoch one was super awesome uh, let's see, the Windstar times uh, Hick Dog, that one was super cool. And then, yeah, the Pipe Maker times Salt, that was just, it was crazy. It was like this mask with like a sword thing and like a shield. And like, it was, it was just wild. I, I didn't even like absorb it enough to really 
you know, tell you what it was, but there's just so much going on. There's like faces coming out of it. And yeah, it was, it was, it was a pretty cool competition. Yeah, that sounds cool, man. I actually am a fan of uh, Salt's work as well, even though I don't know a ton about glass. So I'm curious to see what that collab looked like, but it sounds like you have seen other like renditions of DFO, which is stands for degenerate flame off, right? Yes. Have you seen it kind of almost like evolve? Like you said, now it's like in a bigger kind of space and maybe has like more stuff to it than it used to. Oh yeah. Yeah. It keeps getting better, bigger every year. The first year I went was in 2000, 2016, I believe. And that was in Eugene. It was cool. That was, you know, so close. And that kind of is probably what got me started. And from then into now, I think yeah, it just keeps getting bigger and better every year. People keep, seeing how cool it is and like just people travel from all over the place to go check out this pipe scene and i mean it's some of the best blowers in the world so it's it's really a unique spot to go see art what was some of the best hash that you smoked outside of your home while you were there oh man uh hard to say definitely you know kush kirk's is always awesome but then uh i can't even remember what else I saw smoking that day? I was <laughs> I definitely had some edibles, so I was kind of lit. Can't really remember what else I smoked, but lately, as far as some good hash I've had, like I had some El Presidente from Humble Organic Collective. That was amazing for sure. But there's so many different hash makers there, and I was kind of there doing my thing. So it, sometimes it's hard for me to to link with them, you know. I guess, you know, it just depends on how busy they are too but i'm always down to trade so yeah shout out to humble organic collective i've tried not the uh, el presidente but uh, another variety they run i probably will totally mispronounce it the chiupe or something like that um oh yeah really fire so you also told me that you enjoy like the glass community and you do a little glass blowing yourself so can you tell us when that started? Yeah, I mean, I've been obsessed with glass since I was younger. I used to sell pipes like back in the day and stuff back in Idaho. But so it's probably started there. I just have always loved glass. But once I figured out I could do it, I started it. That was probably about 2016, the fall. Yeah, I mean, it's just a, it's a sweet kind of a meditation and relaxed thing. You know, it helps me like, express my creativity because i'm i'm always that's one of my things is just kind of making stuff and creating things it's, it's something that i enjoy so glass is uh very good for that because you can you know there's so many things you can do with it and you know you can you can invent stuff if you want you know if you're creative enough and then just the art factor is cool like mixing the scientific part of it and the art glass part of it it's, I think, where it's going and has been going for a while, and it just keeps getting more complex. And so, yeah, it's, it's, it's cool to watch. So even before you started blowing glass, like you said, you were into it. What do you feel has kind of resonated with you? Is it just because it was, for example, like a vehicle to smoke weed in, or was it just that you appreciated the medium for what it was as well? Well, I like glass for what it is as well. Yeah, for sure. I think it's just cool to look at. And I, sometimes when I make pieces, I'll carry them around for a while just 
just because it's like, I don't know, it's just cool. But I also like to make smoking devices. I think it's fun, you know, to make a good one that functions correctly. And it's just fun. I just, I just like doing it yourself personally. So, you know, I get satisfaction from doing all, all the different things, you know, basically making the hash, you know, all the way to making the glass. Yeah, it's just fun to be independent sometimes, I guess. Not that I'm truly independent because I'm utilizing the communities to learn, but it's just fun to do it yourself. Yeah, I saw one of your posts kind of going through your feed that was cool where you had a little bowl and a little nug and you're like, it's nice to be able to blow my own pipe and grow my own nug and smoke it. (laughs) It's kind of like a refreshing feeling, I suppose. Yeah, it's a trip. Didn't think that would be possible, you know, back in the day, but here I am. So talking a little bit about this idea of mixing art and science in the glass blowing, I don't think I've spoken to many people that have been doing hash and blowing glass. So could you give a small almost summary of what it would take for somebody to learn the basics of glass blowing? YouTube can pretty much do everything for you now. A few years ago, it was, there wasn't quite as many videos, but now they just keep piling on and piling on. So if, if someone is determined enough just to get a torch and get all the supplies, they could, could learn by YouTube. But since I live in Eugene, which is basically one of the meccas of glass blowing, I figured, you know, I might as well blow while I'm here, you know, because it's just such a good place to learn. There's so many different blowers that live around here and the same thing was as with the growers, but yeah, I figured, you know, when in Rome, I might as well learn. And even if I don't ever make it successful, like business or anything, you know, I can have fun with it. You know, it's just, it's chill, you know? So did you learn from some of the people locally as well outside of YouTube? Yeah. I've taken some classes from a few different Blowers. Um, I took some classes from Turtle, Turtle Glass. I've taken classes from Ryan McClure. Took a marine marine class from him. Then I also took class from Hams. I believe that's all the classes I've taken, but I've watched a whole different bunch of videos as well. So those probably add up to a lot of different ones as well. Do you feel like those kind of live instructional settings were more effective than, for example, the YouTube? Or does it just really come back down to what you told me the last time? It's like you just got to put in the hours. I mean, it definitely helps when you have another blower right next to you telling you what to do, for sure. Because (laughs) when you don't know, there's just so many things that you're supposed to be doing. And if you don't know how to do it, I guess it just takes a feel to have the glass. And like, Honestly, I'm still pretty a greenhorn at it, but it just takes forever to really get your feel for it, I guess. Yeah, so the funny thing is you said that you enjoy doing it. Like you mentioned earlier, it's like an artistic outlet, but you say that the growing always seems to have a way of pulling you away from the glass blowing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'll start to get like a roll on glass blowing and then have some fun and then and then eventually i'll get sucked back into either making hash or growing it just seems like the seasons i tend to blow more in like the winter and then so i'll have like kind of like winter 
kind of spring thing. And then by the time I start to get into it, then spring comes along and then I'm off doing gardening stuff. And then, and then it starts to get hot and I kind of have like a sunroom studio. So it's, it's not the most ideal summer blow area, but it just depends on, on the year and the season. But yeah, most of the time I, I, I get pulled away. I'd like to, to not have that happen as much, but you know, it's hard when you most of the stuff yourself. Yeah. And uh, this is approximately your 10th season at this particular spot. Um, uh, yeah. Around there. Mm-hmm. Now that you're starting up a new season, like we mentioned at the beginning what does that feel like for you after doing it so many times? I don't know. I guess I'm starting to get relaxed about it. You know, I have it down like this season, to be honest, I've kind of been slacking. Like normally I'm, I'm usually pretty quick and in, in ahead of the game and usually one of the earlier people to get stuff done. But I think because I have all my stuff set up, I'm just, you know, it's not like a huge deal for me to get it going immediately this year. And I've kind of been busy just doing other stuff. And, you know, some years I'll go harder than others. So it just depends. You know, this year's kind of a, a more of a being conservative rather than, than going crazy and kind of enjoying the year. But it just depends, like I said. So you mentioned having things in place and that making it easier for you to, let's say, get into the season without having to worry about it too much. What are some of those things that you feel are, are already in place? Well, just having my beds in place already and just all my greenhouses set up. So, I mean, all I really have to do is just do some landscaping maintenance to get it going and then start up, you know, applying some ferments and, and such. But I really doesn't even need it just because once those plants hit the, hit the larger soil, they're going to go crazy. Just got to start the IPM up. Since you bring it up, what is the IPM on your plants? It just depends. Like I like to use the natural mist from Dragonfly Earth Medicine. And then I'll, I'll do other things. Like I'll use lab. I'll use fermented f- plant juice. I'll use aloe, coconut water. It just depends I, on what I have on hand and what I'm kind of into that season. But th- those are the basics that I that generally use. Sometimes, you know, some kelp or worm castings, and then also like, like the fish amino acids. But it's all very small amounts, you know, if I'm, if I'm fully feeding that type of stuff. And I generally try to not go too heavy. I used to go heavier. I think the plants like it, but I don't want, you know, stuff in my hash. So I'm trying to be careful for that. But it can be a double-edged sword. If you don't IPM enough, then sometimes stuff can go wrong, you know, so you you kind of got to be as careful as you can. These past few years have been spraying less for sure. So a lot of the things that you mentioned as being part of your IPM regimen, are they also part of other regimens as well? Like for example, some of the things that you mentioned, is that just strictly for the IPM or is it part of a bigger system that kind of plays more of like this holistic IPM idea? Yeah, probably like what you're saying on the second thing. It's not necessarily, some of those things aren't necessarily for IPM, I guess. Like the coconut water might not be doing a whole lot. But the other things, I think like the, or maybe the fish amino acids. But I think even in that, those two things are giving the plant health 
a better chance to to be healthy. So, you know, essentially it is helping with the IPM. Uh, I'd say just kind of a general holistic thing for sure. Good way to say it. You called yourself more of an intuitive farmer than anything else. What did you mean by that? I do a lot of reading and stuff. So a lot of times it's hard for me to to recall specific facts and stuff. As far as being intuitive, you know, I just, I like to, to read the plants and kind of give them what I feel a lot of times, which, you know, over the years has been less and less, but yeah, I just, I watch them and pay attention to what's going on with the plants and let them tell me what they want. I could be better about, you know, getting more soil tests and stuff like that done. But over the years, I've, it's done me pretty good just, just being intuitive, I guess. Do you think that you now have been feeding them less because throughout this time you've built an environment that can sustain itself? Or is it that you also just saw some results in overfeeding that you didn't like per se? I think it's a combination. Yeah. Over the years, I've built my soul up and I mean, it's pretty awesome. So as long as I just give it a few things, it's it's usually pretty good to go. And if not, I'll pull some soil from some of my other mounds and, and maybe help it that way. What was the second part of the question? I, I kind of lost track there. The second part of the question was about the fact that I think you had mentioned to me when you were feeding the plants a little heavier towards the end. I think oh, it, yeah. Quote unquote, like pumping them up and that they got too kind of big and, and chlorophyll almost. Yeah, so that's that too. Like um, eventually I started feeding less at the end because of that reason. And, and I saw a lot better results just because I would get too excited and be stoked. I want my plants to, to get big buds. And I was like just naive and thought, you know, if I added just a little bit of nitrogen, it wouldn't really hurt it. But because there was so much nitrogen already in the mounds, usually they just kept going from that. And then, you know, you'd end up with big giant trees, but then the nugs wouldn't be super awesome. But eventually the, you know, year after year, it got better and better. Yeah. Not like last year, I didn't really feed a whole lot at the end there. I did like one or two transition bloom feeds and that was it. And they did nicely as far as, you know, chunking up and doing all that, not, um, making them light or anything because you give too much nitrogen. So going back to what you said earlier about doing the majority of things at the farm yourself, talk to me about how the amount of people working on the farm kind of mirrors the season in that, you know, at the beginning there might not be as much to do and it might be yourself and a few others where towards the end, I think you told me at some point, there was a lot of people helping you out because it's just a grind. Yeah. And I think it just, just depends on like, look back then I was more focused in the medical scene and doing the big 56 outdoor plants. So I just, I had to have a lot of people to help me. And now I've kind of scaled back a little bit just because I kind of got tired of having that many people in my house because yeah, it just gets old <laughs> having people come to your house every day after three months, you know, and I didn't really have like a warehouse or anything to have them trim in, you know, installing my areas. 
yeah, so I started to scale back down. These days, it's usually um, just me and like one or two guys during the season. They'll kind of help me part time. And then once we get everything to harvest, then I'll have them. And then maybe, you know, it just depends two to five other people, depending on the season and how fast we're working. Like now that I do depths, I can take my time and do it slow. So I don't really need as many people just because we can, if I have my one hustler friend, we can just, we can get it banged out fairly quick and then take our time as far as selecting it, make sure it's ripe and all that. If I were to scale up, I would have to get more people for sure. But these days, I kind of enjoy those numbers for now. And what year was it that you started depping? 2017. What was the reasoning for that? Just because um, in Oregon, you know, we have we have a nice summer once it gets going. And so you can get some really nice big plants. But at the end, it's really hit or miss. And most times it can be missed as far as the weather. So you can get these nice big plants and get budding and then October comes around and then you just get two weeks straight rain and there's nothing you can do. The mold just will come pretty much unless your plants are super duper healthy. And even then it's like, it's hard. So I started doing the depth and it kind of just eliminates that problem for me. I get the plants to grow and bud in the prime sunlight. I think it made a difference in quality as well. As long as I'm keeping the, the hoops cool and it allows me to take my time and finish the buds and not be rushing them and worried about the, the weather, you know. So it just, it was after I did it one season, I was like, why didn't I do this a long time ago? But I still like to do some outside full sun. I just do less, you know. I'll do like four to eight every year. Still produces some nice hash. You just got to be really careful and know what you're doing as far as, you know, the end of the weather and sometimes you know sometimes you gotta cut them a little earlier than you want but that's kind of part of the game and and over here that's why you got to choose varieties that that mature quicker and then are also um, resistant to that type of thing it just depends on the strain too yeah it looks like you've found some success with a couple of lines that maybe even yourself that you've been working uh, the last four or five years or so that you've been running that apparently is apt to growing in that environment. Yeah. I mean, I've bred some just at this farm. And so I think, you know, by doing that, they slowly start to acclimatize um, that way. Some of the ones that I've done, like the Azure Flare, which is Blue Power times White Fire OG, it just, it seems to do well every year for me. Doesn't really have a major problem with mold or anything. It likes to grow big and then it'll still be chunky and, and produce nice nugs in full sun or or depth. It doesn't really seem to care. But as far as like really like finding one that's like super resistant, I don't think I've really been super on point finding stuff like that. But you know I'm just super careful. I've gotten really good eye for mold. You know I can spot it from from 20 feet away so i'm just super careful i'm just always watching my plants to make sure you know watching the pre-signs or anything you know if they get it they gotta go so for you if you see mold on a plant 
the whole plant is eradicated? Well, I mean, it just depends on what's going on with the molds. Like if it's a small portion, you can basically remove that part and it'll be fine. But if you get, if it's anything like going up the stem or anything like that, it starts to get really bad, really fast. You can tell if it's mold from like a caterpillar or it's a mold that's just coming from the environment and stuff. And if it's from a caterpillar, generally it's, it will be contained. Like if you could chop the whole butt up and it'll just be in that one spot. So you're okay. As long as you remove that, it just depends on, on where you're at in the season. Like it, like if you're getting towards the end of the season and you're starting to see it like that, then yeah, those plants are done probably. <laughs> Do you plant your full terms and your hoop houses at the same time? Um, sometimes. Yeah. Like this year I did, but it just depends. Like I could have planted my hoops a long time ago. Probably. I just didn't because we've had such a wet season that water seeps in from below. And so there'll be like pools of water. So I didn't want to deal with that. But like my hoops are, are very warm, like in the spring and winter, winter even like we were cleaning them up the other day. And, uh, <laughs> It was a good 10 degree difference in poop at least. I would say I'm not, I didn't measure anything, but we were getting pretty warm in there. Do you have any additional airflow in the hoops? Not initially, but once it gets, once it starts to flower, then I'll bring in some fans and set it all up. So yeah, it gets a good airflow going through. It's like fully enclosed. It gets super humid in there when I'm vegging and they really seem to love it. And so I've been doing rocking that for a while. Another thing to note is that you're popping a lot of seeds within these runs. What would you say is your ratio of like seeds to clones at this point? Most years it was like 90, 10 to seeds, you know, but the past couple of years it's been more like 75% seed, 25% clone. This year, I couldn't say the exact number, but I'd say maybe 60, 40, 60 seed, 40% clone, just for convenience this year, I guess. I didn't get quite as many seeds as I wanted popped. I just went out and found some nice clones. Fortunately, there's plenty around here, you know, so it wasn't too hard. What did you decide to bring in? I got some uh, cookies and cream, 13. I got some blueberry muffin, garlic breath, and then some banana OG. Just figured they're all decent washers, you know, and I might do some combos with them just to make it something different. A lot of people have had CNC 13, which is, I mean, it's a great strain, but some people seem to be tired of it. So yeah, I was thinking about doing kind of like how drinks are at a bar where you take two different flavors and make them something else. I mean, guys have been doing it already for a while, you know, I think there's a lot of room there for creating new flavors as far as turp mixing. Yeah, plus, on the other hand, like I said, you have the seeds. And I don't know if all the seeds that you popped are like your own gear at this point, but you definitely seem to have your own kind of little unique flavors that have come out, out of these projects that you've done over the last few years. Yeah, most of the stuff I popped was my gear this year. I did pop some from... Uh, an IG friend who uh, I sent some Azure Forest a while back, and then he crossed it with Sour Diesel Mass Skunk. So shout out to Iron Elegance for that. 
So I'm excited to run those. Should be pretty cool. What else? I have the um, battering rams. So that's the uh, purple punch times Azure Flare. Pretty happy with that one. I did a indoor test run. I've had a few people run it now, and everyone seems to really like it. The Azure Flare goes from either being creamy, musky, kind of like celery type thing, just kind of like bomb herb smell, I don't know, just chronic. And then to uh, the other phenotype would be like nasty gas, like GMO, like OG. Yeah, so that's the blue power cross to the white fire OG, right? Yeah. And which one is the male in that? In the, the Azure Flare? I believe the male was the blue power. But what I was saying about the, the battering ram is that it comes out in between the Azure Flare. The Azure Flare, I noticed it kind of just like adds like a cream or a funk to whatever I'm crossing it with. So it took the purple punch and it basically, it did a range of different purples. Like I had a grape soda purple. I had like a bubble leak chew purple. I had just a purple punch purple. And then I had like a purple punch that was toned down with the um, Azure Flare. So it was like more creamier purple punch. And then I had an Azure Flare one, you know, that tasted more like Azure Flare with just a hint of purple. And so, yeah, people and I'm like happy with that one for sure. I haven't got to run it as hash yet. So I'm excited to do that. And then I have the Teal Baboon, which is the Azure Flare times the Grease Monkey. I did watch that one recently and it came out pretty funky. It's got like kind of a gassy, funky, almost GMO, not really. I would say it's more mild. It's just got that that rank kind of gross, you know, nasty, but it's sweet too. So yeah, that one's been cool. And then, so I'm doing some more of those. And then we have a uh, Blue Lime Slime times Azure Flare. And the Blue Lime Slime, that one is the Chernobyl times Blue Lime Pie. And that one just comes out like lime popsicle, you know, just really good, nice lime terps. And it's kind of like slightly racy. So it's a looker, you know, the Chernobyl was pretty cool looking, but you take the blue lime pie and add it to it. And it's, it's a different thing going on. Like all those blue lime pie mixes I did were, or crosses, excuse me, I did back in 2016. Those were interesting. I think that might be all the seeds I'm doing this year. Although you've been popping your own seeds for some time now, and like you said, you've found things and other people have found things. You told me funny enough that you're not like great at the clone thing. And so right now you're still popping all those seeds and you don't really have a lot of clones, if any, of the stuff that you've already found from your own gear. Correct. Yeah. And kind of like my kryptonite cloning, which is kind of silly because it's, it's a basic thing I should be able to do. But I kind of just always been obsessed with seeds. I would always do such big crops for me anyways. You know, eventually I'd just be kind of burnt out after the season. and I wouldn't want to deal with that for a little while. And it's just always so wet and damp here. I would have issues. So I just didn't want to deal with it. So, yeah, I just got better with the seeds. Yeah, my goal is to be getting on top of that clone game because... Yeah, I've let go of some really nice phenos of, of some stuff that, you know, nobody has. And 
nobody will have because I let go of them. <laughs> but it's always instilled like a love of the hunt into me for searching for different plants from seed. So I'm not going to quit doing it. I just need to be better about keeping those special plants because yeah, I've probably let go of some, some pretty awesome stuff, which I, I utilized and I grew, grew that season, but then I just didn't continue with it, which is, is a bit silly, but it's part of how I do things. I just, I get so busy and then I'll be busy with hashing and then I'll just might want to relax for a while before I deal with the new season. So yeah, that's, it's probably a big factor too. Yeah. You did say that part of one of the perks, I guess you could say of growing from seed and not necessarily worrying about the cuts is the fact that you can take a couple months off after the season and come back and like things are going to be okay. still cause you're just going to pop more seed. Yeah. Which isn't very popular in the grower culture. You know, it's always like, work 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 if you're not working what are you doing but you got to take care of yourself too because i did that for years and then i burnt myself out and then if you burn yourself out then you it's hard to even get energy to do your normal tasks and so it kind of snowballs into yourself i think that kind of partly goes with me just working by myself a lot so that's it's mostly my fault but yeah you got to be careful about how to utilize your your energy yeah, part of it, I think, was kind of saving myself from just meltdown just because that growing 56 plants with a guy or two and harvesting it, you know, all year long. It's just, it's so much work. It's a crazy amount of work. You got to love it to do that, that type of thing. And, you know, I definitely do just trying to take it more easy these last years because I want to keep doing it. I don't want to burn out and then not be able to do it at all. You know, when you're doing too much, it's hard to focus on quality. You know, you do a little bit less and you can focus, really focus on the plant health. You know, if you're trying to do another poop or another this or another that, it can be hard to focus unless you really got your stuff down. And there's some guys who do have their stuff to, you know, shit organized and can do that. But for me, I need to focus on probably less. Found where I can get to and, and grow. And I, and I can, I did fine growing that much, but it's just how much do I value that versus my peace? The, the situation I had right now. If if my farm, if I didn't live on my farm, maybe it'd be a little bit different. Yeah, I could totally see that, man. And I think that that's pretty admirable to just kind of do what you need to do for yourself and not necessarily, you know, work yourself into the ground. Like you said, a lot of farmers do seem to have this very, very perpetual work cycle where either they're getting ready or they're in the middle or it's at the end. And so I could see how that would be taxing season after season. Yeah. I mean, you're a farmer, you've always got something to do. So I'm not trying to say that you don't, but and it just, you know, it's just about balance, you know, just gotta make sure you're taking care of yourself and, and then you'll be able to take care of your farm better too. Just because you're too obsessed with your work. It just doesn't seem to, to go well because you just eventually get burnt out of it. But that's my experience, you know. So have you seen now that you're doing less plant counts? Has your quality gone up since you said that you feel like having kind of a smaller patch, you want to call it that, to tend leads to higher quality? Yeah, I think so for the most part. I think, but also it's hard to, to judge that because of 
you know, my grow experience over the years has also gone up. You know, I think 2015, 16 is when I started to get better at it. It was kind of like a plateau. And from there, it really started to go up as far as quality. I think it's the more attention you're able to give to that plant, probably the better it's going to be. There's levels. And if you're taking care of them, you can definitely grow a lot of weed and have good quality. But if you have a problem or this or that, it can be hard to keep on it. And, you know, plants sense your energy. They know, or I feel like they can tell the difference. Like you can tell, you see someone who really loves and knows what they're doing and you see their herb or their hash and you can just tell, you can just see how amazing it is. And you see someone who's like kind of into it for the money and don't really know what they're doing and their weed is terrible. <laughs> you know, you guys have seen it time and time again. And the plants, I don't know, they can feel you and they, you know, they react to you for sure. I think that's, I don't know, it's, it's a weird thing, but I think it's true. <laughs> I've noticed some some growers just, I don't know what they have, but they just do something and the plants love it. For some reason, just the energy that comes off those growers is uh, genuine. Yeah, that's interesting to hear. And interesting to hear that that's present in like the final product, you could say, in your opinion. For sure. Well, cool, man. I think this could be a good opportunity for our first smoke break. You down? Down. Down. Cool. Shout out to our homies and main sponsors, Rosin Evolution, the best bags in the game. You can visit them at rosinevolution.com or on Instagram at rosinevolution100. No matter what experience level you have processing, having the best tools of the craft is a great starting point, which is why if you're pressing hash, why not do it with the most trusted brand in Rosin, Rosin Evolution. Their bags are being used in many of the top labs in the nation, trusted by many of the top processors around for being consistently reliable. So if you're making Rosin, no matter whether you're a novice like myself or you're processing daily, you can find everything you need as well as amazing customer service at rosinevolution.com and save 5% on your entire order by using our savings code, the letters THI, the number 710, that's THI710, saves you 5% at rosinevolution.com. Thank you so much for listening and I hope you enjoy the rest of the episode. So... Would you call yourself more of a melt guy? Yeah, for sure. At heart, I'd say I'm a melt guy because just because I was doing that before rosin, you know, I started doing melt when I was, I mean, doing it as dabble full melt probably around 2013. It's the first time I ever made some good, good stuff I dabbed. And then it slowly got better as I got more material and stuff. So yeah, I've always loved hash, especially when it's done super proper. It's hard to beat the high for me. It just hits me right, I guess. I mean, I like rosin too. Don't get me wrong. I smoke smoke a lot of rosin as well. Just depends. I like them both. I'll go back and forth. Seems like my highs will, um, I don't know, my tolerance likes that. Just sometimes I'll, I'll be smoking hash for a while and then I'll go to rosin and I'll kind of get a new high off that. As far as, as being a hash guy, uh, yeah, I take high pride in how good my hash is because the hash is no good your rosin's beat no good anyways you know and then i would say you know if you don't have the material then it doesn't matter anyways <laughs> it starts with the grower for sure always credit to the grower so you grow for hash 
and rosin is just a byproduct of it? Essentially, yeah. Sometimes people want rosin more. Just depends. But yeah, I, I try to grow the best hashes I can. And then rosin, it's going to be good no matter what. I generally don't do a whole lot of like full spec and stuff like that. So I don't wash for rosin like some guys do. You know, they'll only wash a certain amount of times. And I'm always washing to potentially get a good hash yield in and product. And then if it goes from there, you know, maybe I'll rosin it or, or whatever. Um, just depends on, on what it does. Something you told me last time that stuck with me is you said you don't typically pull a 90U back. What's the philosophy behind that? Well, to be honest with you, probably laziness um, is the philosophy. But I just always had done 70 or 73 and have always gotten a good product from it. So I just never felt like doing that other bag where I have to have a whole nother jar and then a you know, more, more jars to deal with. Sorry, as a hash maker, you already got all kinds of different grades and jars that you're dealing with. So I kind of did it just to be more simple in that fact that I knew most of the time, I mean, all the time, pretty much for me, that 70U was always producing the best hash for sure. Probably would do better getting some 90U certain, certain times for sure. But I don't know, just saving my back and kind of saving space for jars i guess but i think i'm gonna experiment more with the 90 just because some people request it some people seem to uh prefer it and or don't like 70u for some reason so gotta not be so stubborn and do do what others are doing is sometimes you know it just depends so you mentioned earlier that patients are seeking rosin a lot of the time now are you keeping the same amount as melt as you have been in the past or has it become more rosin? Generally, I like to keep it as melt. And then if someone runs rosin, I'll just press it out for them. Cause generally I do fresh press anyways. I rarely do many cold cures or batters or anything like that. Just because I like melt so much, I like keeping it as melt and I'd rather move it like that, to be honest with you. You know, I just like having the option and keeping it like that gives me the option. If, if I just pressed it, then I can't, can't have milk. I saw you make a post that was interesting to me a while back. And now that I went back and looked at your feed, I found it again. And in essence, you were relating the value of hash to what you said earlier about grading it. And I was hoping that you could give us kind of a little rundown as to how you see that in the sense of with the melt, you're taking out a slice but then all these other slices that could be used aren't necessarily being used. Yeah. So, I mean, you have so many different bags. Let's say you have five bags. Let's say you're doing five washes. That's 25 different grades. So going to be a lot to deal with, but generally I only use the first and second for first and second wash for uh, most of my stuff, you know, like for my high grade material, I would just use the 70U 1 and 2 and like the 120U 1 and 2. And that would be either my hash or my rosin. And then I'll take the third and fourth wash and sometimes I'll keep that around because it'll still looks good, but it's just not quite as terpy. So sometimes I'll smoke it or just give a slight discount on that. 
just tell people what they're getting. And then like the rest of everything else, I just turn that to the full spec and generally I'll press that, you know, and smoke it myself just for whatever reason and or do a discount on that or make edibles or whatever I want to do with it. Um, generally, it comes out really good a lot of times. So it's kind of nice. It'll be a nice different high to get that stuff. But I, generally what I like to smoke is like the first, second wash of those bags. So it's just the cream of the crop basically versus, you know, washing, taking everything that you, all those grays and put it together and then trying to smoke that as hash or resin. It's not going to be the same. You told me you've gotten a lot pickier over time since, let's say, I think you said 2013 when you first made some dabbable water hash. What is your standard now for, you know, a quote unquote six star melt? I like to see it be have a really nice shine to it. You can always kind of tell when hash is good when it's got that glimmer. And then as far as finger press, I generally like to see it. If you're finger pressing it, it's going to press out really fast. And then as far as residue, you know, very small amount of residue, you know, you should be able to clean it with like a Q-tip max, you know. And then just as far as the flavor and the high, you can see how it melts in it. If it's bubbling super rapid, super nice big domes, I don't know, just you can tell when it's got that tip-top quality. And, And nowadays, you know, yeah, I'm probably more strict nowadays than I used to be. I used, you know, when you start, you get excited over some five star or something. Like, yeah, that was awesome. But still, probably has a little bit too much residue. You call it a six star, you know. But you can tell when you do it and you make it right, you get that six star. And then, you know, if I've smoked a few others from from growers now, and and I've been able to compare what I've seen in the past, and so you know, I know that that that's on point. Speaking on the differences between the hoop houses and the full terms, do you feel one or the other makes better melt? And maybe that's dependent on the time of year. You know, I don't know. It's a hard one to say. I think I just like the depths in general because I'm able to control everything better. But sometimes in some years I've made, some really good full season stuff that blew my mind. I was like, wow, I think it was going to come out that good. And it just came out really great. But they both have good potency and quality, I feel like. It's just if you're able to get that strain that's in the full sun to, to really uh, finish. But it just depends. Sometimes I've had it come down a little bit early, you know, earlier than I would like, and it still came out really good. But I generally try to avoid that. I don't like to be harvesting stuff early if I can. I'm always trying to push it as long as I can, but not too long. Obviously, you don't want to be getting into the point where they're degrading and you've got too many ambers. But I like a narcotic stone, you know, I like it to be fully, fully there. So by taking them as long as you can, even though sometimes they have to come down a little early, do you see that translate into the color of the resin? Yeah, well, I mean, with fresh frozen, most of the time it's always it's much more light. I used to do a lot of dry ash back in like 2016 and and before that, and yeah, the colors would kind of vary a little bit more. But just fresh frozen comes out a little bit lighter in general, as far as that. And then sometimes, you know, if you do get one of those that you do too early, it will come out really white. You know, I don't I don't know. It sometimes those ones taste really good too. It just depends. 
depends on the strain, I suppose. And I kind of like having variety around, but I, you know, I'd rather have those things mature if I can. Not my intention for sure. So, for example, in the situation where you're not having to pull the plant down early in the outdoor, and I'm assuming that was to, again, combat something like mold, like you said earlier, or something of their sort before it set in kind of thing. Yeah, and or the, the weather just starts getting worse and worse and worse. And so, you know, it's just going to be a matter of time. You got to like pre-anticipate the mold and then race it against it. So that's always kind of tricky. So it's always better to, to be ahead of it than behind it. But some people definitely freak out. Like harvest it way too early, you know. So it just depends on what's going on, you know, with the season and the plants and what kind of mold it is, you know. But I definitely don't, don't want to be washing moldy stuff because that'll ruin your reputation and you know it's not nice it's bad bad practice and not something i would want to do so i'm very careful with it and i will watch and inform all my people while we're breaking everything down to be extremely careful while we're breaking it down so as long as you're super duper careful i feel like you can combat it a little bit but it's a tricky tricky deal so here's a weird question and i only bring it up because we were talking about this mold and somebody asked me this the other day. Essentially, the question is, if moldy material were washed and made into cold cure, from the cold cure, would you be able to tell that it came from moldy material? Yeah, I don't know. It could have like a weird, gross, moldy taste. And then it might like upset your throat or something. So I wouldn't want to do it because of that reason, especially. You don't want to give something someone that could be irritating them you're trying to grow a plant to heal them, not to make them sick. Right. You know? So definitely don't want to do that. But going back to my point, if you didn't have to cut down the plants early and you got to pick the exact point of ripeness that you wanted, let's call it, how do you determine that? Is that like, are you looking at the trikes? Are you looking at the plants? Is it both? I look at everything. I look at the structure of the nugget, you know, as it's been growing. I do like to look at the trikes. I will take a magnifying glass and just make sure I have the right ratios. You know, I usually try to do like, just depends, you know, like 25% amber, 50% milky, and then 25% clear, something like that. It just depends. Maybe a little bit more amber, maybe a little bit more clear. I'm not sure. Just depends on what you feel like. And a lot of times as I'm doing stuff in the garden, I will research it. So I've read so much stuff that so sometimes I can't even say what I did that year. And I, what I should have done is do like a yearly uh, book, a journal of what I've done. If I would have done that, it would have had so much good information. You know, I kind of kicked myself, but it just kind of comes in from being from Idaho. I don't like to keep <laughs> keep that type of thing around, like it was in or something. I don't know. But man, I should have done that because that would have been a lot of good information. Because every year I'll come back to the same situation and I'll be like learning and again or whatever. And it gets to a point where I don't have to do that. But some years I noticed I did it better than other years. I don't know what it is. If I would have had that journal, I could have just looked at it and been like, oh yeah, it looked great that year. Let's just do this. But it's always good to have a plan in the season and stuff. But I guess uh, I've just gone to the point where I've started to wing it. Like I used to plan everything out and get all crazy with all that. But now all I need to do is put the plants in the ground June 1st and I'm good to go. 
I got everything set up out there. Just need to work on my amendments and get everything landscaped and cleaned up. And then I'm, I'm pretty good. So just because I'm not really doing new beds or anything like that this year. Some years I will, and so then I'll create a lot of work in the spring. But the years I don't do that, it's nice, you know, just because I can just focus on growing. I don't got to be building stuff. So what's going on in the hoop houses while it's like off season? I generally just let them just chill. I don't even pull out the plants for a while sometimes. When spring comes around, certain time, point in time, I will come in and clean it. The hoops just uh, kind of rest, basically. You need to start planting some cover crops in there while they're resting. But the grass kind of just takes over. And so I just kind of do a drop and chop of the grass. So that kind of does the same thing. And then there's a few other plants in there. Like um, there's a lot of detura, random weeds and cover, ground cover type plants. So there's plenty of stuff in there to mulch, that type of thing. Cool. And then what kind of amendments are you giving your plants? I know you mentioned some earlier and even referred to like fermented plant juices as part of the IMO, but is that part of your regimen? Well, like in previous years, I would add like the whole no-till thing. I would create my own soil, get everything, and then add the kelp, the crab, the neem, alfalfa. Sometimes I add just a tad of coconut poir. So yeah, like I would do the, all those basic dry amendments, but that was in previous years. I haven't done those for a few years now. This year, I probably will be doing more of like the fermented fruit juice, the fermented plant juice. I'll be doing the fish amino acids, probably going to try to do the IMOs. And then also lab and a few of the other inputs as far as the KNF. And then I like to just use like the aloe, the coconut and you know, like a few different compost teas or just like sprouted seed tea. I think it's pretty hard to find barley right now, if I'm not mistaken, but probably we'll do like a, a nice organic corn sprouted tea again for like the transition that seemed to really stack them up last year. Yeah, that's probably about it as far as the different amendments and inputs. I might try to get some different compost and, and get making on that. Now, is that all going into the soil or is some of that being foliar fed? Some of it will be foliar fed, like fermented fruit juice, excuse me, the fermented plant juice and uh, the lab, maybe even the IMO. But that'll be more in the beginning of veg. And then I'll be using it as a soil drench after that to just to feed them with all the ferments. So you've mentioned lab a few times. Can you give us a small breakdown as to what that is? Uh, lab is lactic acid bacteria, and it's just a bunch of good bacteria. They do a lot of stuff, but they get the good balance of bacteria going in, in your soil. If you foliar spray it, it has some different benefits. Like I can't name them all off. I can't remember them all right now, but I know it does make fruit sizes bigger. And it can sterilize stuff. Like if you spray lab in a uh, nasty pig pen or something it will eliminate the smell so they use that as well in the knf for the livestock which is kind of cool yeah lab just uh just gets the good bacteria in there and i mean i guess that's the gist of what i know about it. i'm not like an expert on any or anything i just know it really helps whenever i use it <laughs> it just works you know 
Yeah, I think you told me that you can see it in the plants, not only with that, but also with the KNF as well, which you mentioned. And that's something that I've talked to a few people about on the podcast, including Pua and Macho Melts. But do you use that in combination with other things like is lab part of KNF or can those? Yeah, lab's part of KNF. I mean, and I kind of follow it loosely. I'm not strict doing every single KNF step. I like to kind of mix my styles, no tail with KNF. So some years I'll just do like a loose KNF. I'll do a few different ferments and inputs, and then I won't do it all. You know, like this year, I probably want to try to go a little bit more in depth with it because, like, when you do do the IMO and you get it all the way up to the stages, to the final stage, like it kicks butt. You can see a difference when you apply it like the next day. But all of them make a difference. Like I feel the fermented plant juice, that's the first one I started doing back in like 2014, 13. That was when I was using age-old organic nutrients as well, just in the bottle. And I would take that fermented fruit juice and I would mix it with the age-old. And like I saw a major difference once I started adding that ferment and i think you know they just the plants just love it they go crazy for it so once i saw that and i was like wow this is pretty cool so then i started using more and more different ferments it's kind of gotten to the point where i just do a, a mix of the combinations i like to call it jeet kun grow the style of the styles kind of like a bruce lee inspiration thing that's part of the being intuitive and just feeding them what what i feel they want sometimes i'll have a plan i have like a general plan but Sometimes you can't do that in growing. Certain things will happen or you'll have problems or whatever. You know, it's just a, it's never a sure thing growing. There's always something to figure out. I feel like, you know, even when you think you got it down, something will happen. and It can be tough. Going back to what you were saying about the IMO levels, how is it that you reach or progress from level to level? Do you do that within one growing cycle or over time oh you can do it within one growing cycle you just gotta follow i mean i can't really tell you the steps off my top of my head right now just because it's been a little while since i've done it Yeah, but it doesn't take a long time like i in some seasons i've done it as i've been growing takes a certain amount of time each step i don't think it's more than like two weeks each step if that yeah you can definitely do it as you're growing but you can also store if you got it in the right place and you mentioned, I think one of the times that you had worked on getting those levels high in a season, that there was a storm that came through that really wrecked a lot of people's plants, but that your plants were really pretty resilient to that storm. And you feel a lot of it had to do with that. That was in 2016. And I had done all the way up to IMO4 and uh, all the different other inputs, most of them. Yeah, that, that was like the last year I did full season a bunch of big girls and that season everyone you got we got nailed with like two weeks of straight storms and rain at the end like my plants just kept taking it kept taking it and they were they were doing really well until the very end then it started to, to get worse and become a problem but i had a few growers talk to me and that they noticed how well my plants were doing that year I'm convinced it was because of the IMOs and, and just the whole regimen and, and how much uh, you know, love we gave them that year. And just we were just on point with the whole IPM and 
I think I've done better since then because of the amount of plants we're doing. But yeah, that year, the quality was, was crazy good. If they would have been allowed to mature, it would have been super awesome, you know, but it was, it was a tough season. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's the other thing is that it sounds like the seasons can be super challenging and there can be a lot of different challenges from the beginning towards the end. I don't think we talked about this today, but you mentioned that there was like water coming in and that's why you hadn't planted the greenhouse yet, but it's because you sit on these wetlands and this year it's been extra rainy during this time of year, which isn't normal. And so it's interesting to see how you have to learn and adapt and basically be able to go with the flow to make it work with every season. Yeah, it seems like there's always a different issue for each year. Like some years it's been these fires. Those have been not fun to deal with. Thankfully, we didn't have to deal with that last year. There's just always something like this year has been really wet. So I haven't been able to really go out there and get it prepped out like I would want to just because it's soaking wet. I live in a wetland. To even walk around, you're in six to 12 inches of water. And that doesn't really, you know, it's hard to work on your mounds when they're kind of surrounded by that. So yeah, I've been taking my time this year as far as that goes. And it's still wet out there, which is crazy for right now. You know, it should, it should, should be like pretty warm, but it's been really rainy this season and, and fairly cold. So when the plants, I mean, when all the grass and all that stuff gets that water, it's been going crazy once it gets a nice warm spurt. So yeah, it's been a challenge to get planted this year. It's also just because I'm on the wetland. I have a huge pond next to my grow space and it kind of just wicks underneath there through the clay soil. So with the clay soil and the wicking, it, it makes it tough to plant. Yeah, it sounds challenging, man, for sure. Well, I think this would be a good opportunity for a second smoke break. You done? I'm done. Cool. I'd like to take a moment to thank every person who makes up our community on Patreon for allowing us to continue producing episodes, including episode 43 with Brian of Black Ram Farms, and to give a special shout out to some of our top contributors, including Chris in Colorado, Fuel by Full Melt in Michigan, Kevin of Lifted in Dina, the homie Big C, Macro Melts in SoCal, Nick the Intern, the Chile Relleno Burrito, Jungly Grows, Mids Adjacent in Arizona, Garland in D.C., Gastown Fire and their Green Cedar Retreat in Tofino, Canada, Sandman Hashstar, the crew at Heritage Hashco, Mendocino, Jonah in Illinois, David at Rosin Evolution, Melt Walkie Jeff, the homie Real Cannabis Chris, and Depeche44 in Connecticut. I thank each and every one of you. Now back to the episode. So let's talk a little bit about how you got into hash. You mentioned... Idaho a few times. Is that the first place that you ever tried to make hash? Yeah. I think how I got into hash was just reading. Even when I first got into weed when I was 16, 17, I just like got obsessed with it. Like all I would do, come home at nighttime, smoke weed, drink some orange juice, and then just read. Like I'll just read about weed, anything I could find on the forums or whatever. So I did that like a long time. That's like how I learn most of my growth styles at the beginning in hashing. So I had seen guys making full melt hash just on the forum. So I thought that was super cool and just wanted to do it as well. So yeah, I tried 
getting uh, this technique off of the forums, like IC Mag or can't remember which one it was. Might have even been like Planet Ganja or one of the other forums. But basically, you take old five gallon buckets and you chop off the top of one of them. Then you order your mesh from companies overseas in China or whatever. So I got five different meshes ranging from 220 to probably 25 or I don't remember what the what the microns were but say you take that and then you'd wash your hash back in the day I was washing it just not even cold rooms or anything just washing it in like my bathroom or whatever or shop or wherever I was you just would take the screen and put it into one of the buckets and then you took the bucket with the one that got chopped in half and put that into the screen so it would hold the screen in there and then you could just take your material once you washed it and pour it into that screen and then you would take that screen and put it into a different bucket and take the top and put it in it and then you could pour it again so you just kind of went back and forth and then you got your hash that way so that's like the first time i started and got into hash and came about through the forum so i was kind of already into that once i got into instagram and i started seeing hash that looks like bho then i was like holy cow i gotta figure out how to do that i already knew about full melt but i didn't realize and i knew you could make it really good but i didn't realize you could make it look that good so that's when i started to try to figure that out that was probably 2014 13 maybe so these first attempts in boise were they with dry trim material yeah i think the first time because i had a there was a grower in boise that i used to sell weed for and he just had one 1000 watt and he was just growing a couple different strains but he gave me some well, actually it might have been wet yeah he gave me some stuff that he had and he didn't want anymore for some reason so i tried to wash it i did it the old school way where you just wash it again not in the cold room <laughs> didn't know about that back then didn't realize you needed it like that cold and i just washed it in this big container and then i didn't have bags back then so i just let it sink to the bottom and then i was going to try to collect it that way but it just didn't work out because i didn't didn't have a good plan of collecting and i decided that i was going to boil it off <laughs> you can imagine how that went i ended up just being a stoner i got stoned and then turned the oven on and then it went off and burnt up so that was like the first time i ever tried to make cash eventually i did get it down a little bit where i was getting some like dad ash you know some just some some smokable formal yeah, so that was like the first times I made it. But before that, I probably had made Quiso. That's the first hash I guess I ever made. But, you know, that's not real hash. It's just, it's an extract. So a few things. So you made the Quiso, which is the kind of alcohol-based extraction, right? Where you uh-huh. almost isolating it and then letting it dry off, basically, off it? Yeah, I would just take like old stems and stuff, shake it up in the alcohol. And then I used to pour it through my old <laughs> Keef box. Because that was the only screen I had back then. And that worked pretty good. And I would just pour it onto a pan and then I would evaporate it. And then, yeah, I would have some hash. And that was like the first stuff I made. And that was probably in like 2007 or maybe even earlier to know. It's like, it's hard to remember. It's been a while now, but yeah, that was the first ones I made. And so when you made that water hash after that, the idea was similar in like, that you were kind of like burning off the alcohol or heating it. <laughs> yeah. You were going to heat yep. up the hash. Yeah, I had the bright idea of putting it into a pan and then trying to burn it off like that. 
because generally when I did it with Keyson and how I do it with RSO, still do it with RSO sometimes. So I'll take I'll take a pan, I'll put a bigger pot underneath and take two two like pieces of wood, and then you just put it on a very light boil, not even hardly boiling, just kind of get it going, and that'll like evaporate the alcohol out of the uh, RSO. So I'll do that before I decarb it. And it just kind of helped me get done with that process. But I was, I was attempting to do that with the, <laughs> with the hash back in the day. And uh, yeah, it just burnt off because the, uh, the actual water burnt off the pan too. Right. Silly 18-year-old 18, 18 stoner, but <laughs> to so, be young. So after that point, you started understanding that like you had to dry it better. How long did that take? What did that look like? You know, my early days drying it, I still didn't do that much, you know, until 2013 or 14. That's when I upped my drying game and realized you had to start doing it in the cold and stuff. Like the first six star I washed was just in my laundry room and uh, it was some bubble cushion. But I didn't dry that very well at all. It probably oxidized on me or whatever, but it's I still remember smoking that. That was like the first good, good hash I ever smoked. And I was like, holy cow, it's amazing. The first first drawings were probably just done in a closet or something. Who knows? Like I can't remember. Yeah, eventually I got my drying down and I would set up dry rooms. Now I rock the freeze dryer and I have my cold room. But we'd like to get back to doing some air dry stuff just because every once in a while it would be cool to have some of that again. It does like a unique presentation and it, it does preserve terps nicely as well. And some people really like that. So I'd like to have the option to tune it again. I just kind of fell in love with the freeze dryer. Saves my back, saves me time. Kind of got used to it. And, and I like the texture of it too. Just seeing it individually, you know, heads basically. Is that not something you feel that you could get with the air dryer or as easily? Not quite as easily, no. Like doing the sieve, how I do the wet sieve, it would come out a little bit bigger, you know, it would kind of glob together a little bit more. It was harder to get that consistency. But you, you get a different look, too. You know, can I get a more of a crystal-y vibe to it? Or even like, a, looks more like a quartz or something, you know, broken up or something. And then when you are making rosin, what material is that typically from? Generally, I like to use the first and second uh, wash and the 70U or the 120, or those two mixed. That's generally what I'm pressing. I always like to press the best grade. It would be my six star grade too, if that strain is is six star. So I'll press out my best stuff. Yeah, for sure. I like to put my best foot forward. I feel like I'm not like opposed to doing mixes and stuff. I feel like there's really good full spec mixes out there too. I've had really great ones. You just got to be pick about what you're putting in there. That's why I don't like to do it that much because you're taking your highest grade and putting it with a, some other grades that aren't quite as good and kind of averages them out. But I don't know. I like the, uh, the clarity of the higher grade and flavor a little bit more. It's more precise for me. Full specs tend to have more of a uh, cured flavor for me. And what do you mean by full spec? Anything that's remaining from there, like the, the 40U, the 70U, other washes possibly, the 160 Generally, just the stuff that doesn't melt. I don't really like full spec isn't my main deal. It's just kind of the excess that I have. And I generally offer it for, for less, you know, budget thing. But there's never really that much of it anymore. 
generally have bigger yields in my 70 and 120. Is that, do you feel like a result of your improvement as a cultivator or maybe like the experience level going up over these years? Yeah, I'm just getting better at harvesting when I want. And I don't know, just everything. I guess all the variables make a difference. Just being super careful when you're harvesting it, getting better at letting the plant tell me what it wants instead of trying to force it, you know, into flower or keep giving it this or that. Just let it do its thing. It'll naturally ripen better that way. Just depends on the strain, too. Some of them you can feed like crazy. Some of them are picky. It just depends. When you are washing, it sounds like you're doing hand agitation. Or What amount of fresh frozen do you like to wash? Probably four to seven K fresh frozen. I like to have the can like three-fourths with full. I don't like it too full to where it's like I'm having a problem with the first wash because I feel like when you do that, it kind of like roughs it up a little bit. Yeah, I just like it to be enough to where I'm able to mix it fairly nicely. So I'll do two cans of those if I have to versus just one big one. I see some guys fill them way up, but for me, I like it a little bit less just because I'll get into it and then I kind of, I might forget or something. So I want to make sure. And generally, it'll kind of loosen up and you won't have that problem. But the first like five minutes of dealing with it, you got to be careful. Yeah, just because it's not, not fully, uh, you know, fully there yet as far as being probably soaked. Maybe this depends on how, you're, how long you're soaking it. I generally soak it fairly long, so it usually is, but it still has a crunch to it sometimes. What's a typical amount of time that you soak your fresh frozen material in your wash bag? Just depends. If I'm doing fresh frozen, usually at least an hour. Dry material, I've done up to two and a half, three hours. I like to get the material loose, so then it will just it'll dump on you when you when you do agitate it. Because otherwise, you know, I've done. In the past, I've done 15 minutes, I've done 30 minutes. I was talking to Trichrome Extract Technologies one time, and he said, don't worry about leaving your material in the water for a while. It'll be fine. And ever since then, I started doing it longer, and I think it works good that way. It don't, you know, you don't have to have slightly uh, crunchy material that will break off and shear, create more chlorophyll. You know, if you're washing stuff that's really good, you I don't feel it really affects the terps, you know. Yeah, that was going to be my, one of my questions is, have you seen any difference in the resin, for example? Not really. I feel like as long as you wash a nice pungent strain, I've had it soaked up to two and a half hours and done like a huge long freeze dryer cycle and still comes out loud. But you might run into problems if you're doing something that's not as loud, maybe. I'm not sure, but I just... The terpenes that tend to like come out in the water, I don't feel like those stay around anyways. A lot of those ones that the water tends to wash out the terpenes seem to be like those really greasy ones that you can't even like collect sometimes. You ever pressed out flower rosin and it's just like pure water. You can't even get it. Like I think that's kind of like some of those strains that that happens with. Relating that to you starting to wash in the cold over time you mentioned to me last time that typically you do it in the winter i think in part because it aligns with kind of harvest and stuff but also because temperatures are just naturally cold yeah i mean i have a cold room and i keep it 
pretty cold, but just nice to have it, an extra blanket of cold around that. I mean, you'd be surprised. I can get my cold room down to 40 and then me being in there, working in there and having the freeze dryer on, it warms up pretty quick. <laughs> and I probably just need to get a better AC, but if I have a cold, it doesn't really matter because it's the winter. And then, yeah, it just kind of correlates with my seasons anyways. Try to wash as soon as I can, but sometimes I like to take a couple weeks to settle down for a sec and finish the takedown and all that. So is any of the fresh frozen sitting for like a long time? It can, yeah. I mean, I've washed it all the way up into March, April, May, and it still comes out good. But, you know, I try not to do that. I always try to get it done before February. So it's not sitting too long. You know, I've had stuff that sat for quite a while and it's fine. But, you know, I want to get that done as soon as possible. You want it fresh. And uh, that's the same thing. I'd like to try to get to my people as soon as possible. But I've had a hash that I just kept in my freezer for like up to two years and it's still pristine. Probably not quite as good as it was, but still really, really good. You know? So I think it just depends on how good your hash was when you stored it. Because I've had stuff that I stored for like six months and it just kind of wasn't so good after a while. And I was like, but then it's other stuff that really kept their turps. Like this one time I did this um, Seattle sour kush and I lost one of those jars in, in my stash. And like I found it like two or three years later and still smelled like I remember it smelled like. And it's just that half really good. It had a really good sheen and oil content. And I think maybe the oil content helped it stay good like that. And maybe the just the way the resin is, I don't know. Maybe it had a good cuticle on it or wax. I'm, <laughs> I'm not sure. Yeah, I see that sometimes you find jars that you don't know you have or didn't know were in there. So that's interesting that you bring that up because that has been something that uh, I've discussed almost as like a, a what if, you know, like if you store resin, does it keep? So it's interesting to hear that in your experience, some of the resin keeps better than others. Again, it comes almost down to the genetic traits again. Yeah, definitely. It just depends on on a bunch of the factors and some of them I don't think we even know because like hash has been somewhat of a mystery for a little while. I mean, now people are dialing it in for sure, figuring out, you know, all about the heads and, and which ones wash better and, and not. But for a while there, that's why I think a lot of people didn't do hash because they had the experience of washing stuff, something that just turned out horrible because most stuff doesn't really wash that great. You got to find the good hashers and then it makes a difference. You know, if you don't have some good hashers, you're going to have a bad time until you kind of figure it out. But people are figuring it out now. And I think, you know, it, it's gone forward from where it was. Now it's doing it. So I think people realize it's pretty badass. You also brought up another point. I'm not sure where it was in relation to this about some of these strains, even some of the ones that, like you said, you lost because of the cut situation, not being around in that you didn't want some of those genetics to really leave the farm because in a way those flavors become kind of part of your brand to some degree. Yeah. I mean, it's only one strain I've really done that with. It's just the Azure Flare, just because I 
have been utilizing it as like kind of a grandparent to all my breeding. I wanted one that was unique, but I kind of been thinking about letting it go one of these years and then just like doing like a run of it, getting it on par to where I feel like I could release it. I think just having one or two or even a few different strains that other people don't have access to will just give you a little bit of an edge of being unique because everyone, once they get the strain that's hot, then everyone's doing it. Kind of keeps it different from me, but some people don't like it either. Like they, I'll tell them all these different strains that I got, and they're like, "Oh, well, I don't know what that is," so they don't seem to care. But other people are like, think it's cool because no one else has the stuff. Super small batch that you're not going to find anywhere else. But there's a lot of that in the cannabis industry right now. There's so many good, a lot of good seed makers and growers and, and hash makers. So it's hard to choose. <laughs> Now, we talked about the seeds a little earlier, but when did you get into start making them? I think just the idea of having seed and the idea of breeding. I was always kind of into it. My dad used to breed dogs for hunting. So that probably part of why I like, wanted to do the breeding. But yeah, I just like making my own stuff. Figured it'd be super cool to have my own strain. So I started doing that probably around 2013 I was doing seeds every year but or excuse me maybe 2011 I started doing the breeding I did it pretty much immediately as I started growing at this new place versus the new gene out of fun curiosity really I just had seedlings and had some males and I was like all right well let's just put them together and see what happens and then I had some cool flavors that I liked and they ended up making some really good flavors and Azure Flare ended up just looking really good. And I mean, it makes really nice flour and uh, grew nice. Then I washed it and it gave me like almost 6% fresh frozen return, which was, you know, about 24% dry or so. I'm not sure on the exact numbers, but I mean, it threw down. So that was like, that was kind of an eye opener for me. And that was before a lot of people really were yielding consistently high numbers so that's kind of part of the reason why i kept it to myself too for a while but I forgot where i was going with that smoking too much hash <laughs> <laughs> don't worry Steve. you told me last time something kind of funny i asked you what you look for in a male now that you've been making seeds for a while and you gave me answers that like i've heard before for example uh, plants that are resinous that have good structure but you said something kind of funny too and you're like and also that's not weird you're like you get a lot of these kind of weird looking plants so would you expand a tiny bit of that yeah i think maybe just like i meant the structure of the plant maybe i don't know i could just, you could just see a structure on a plant and see if you like the way it looks you know if it's gangly in a certain way or just isn't stout doesn't have nice big leaves or even some of the coloring on it. I tend to like to choose purple or like bluish males sometimes. For some reason, I like them. And of course, if it's resinous, I would always choose that. But then uh, as far as that, how vigorous they are is a huge factor for sure. And I might even choose one of the weird ones if it's, it's like a crazy freak that's doing some interesting things. Just depends, you know. You could, if it's a weird, stunted one, I probably 
use it. It's maybe what I meant. Okay, cool. And how are you going about like pollinating this? Are you doing like the paintbrush tech where you're hitting parts of these plants or almost like an open pollination? Um, I've done both. The last few ones I've done inside and I'll just kind of do an open deal. But if I was going to do it outside, I would probably be doing a paintbrush and being really careful because I don't want cross-contamination. I haven't had a problem ever really with that, but I don't really want to find out either. You know, <laughs> I'll take methods to like be really careful and like spray the area down and or keep the water running. So if pollen does get astray and has a chance of getting hit by the water and just doing a really small amount of pollen. That's that's how I do it. Probably might be doing more indoor stuff just because it keeps it away from all the hoops and stuff. And, you know, I have dogs and they might be cruising around. Who knows if they might grab some somehow. And even the farmer, <laughs> you got to be careful. Well, cool, Brian. I appreciate you hanging out with me this long. I'll start winding it down and just start asking kind of questions all over the place. You mentioned to me that when you harvest, you use the cloth hanger tech. Can you tell us about how and why that came to be? Yeah, I mean, I just like to keep everything off the tables and the ground uh, in bins. Like sometimes if it's too crazy, maybe I might use a bin. But generally, I feel like the less you touch the plant, the better it is. So I'll ask, you know, me and my people when we're breaking it down. I generally we try not to like set it down on the table. We'll keep it all elevated until it goes into the bag. Just try not to be touching our hands on the buds. Like we just use our fingertips on the stem and just being as delicate as we can. Like that's one thing I noticed that I do that some other growers might not. Then they're frustrated that they can't make good hash. Is that you have to be very, very delicate when you're processing it. And so I'm kind of anal too about, you know, people snipping too much and this or that. (laughs) So it takes me a while to get someone I like that works for me that does it right. It just takes a little while. But fortunately, I have a few guys that have been doing it for a while. They know what I like. So that's fine. It works good. But yeah, it's just being super careful with the material is, is a huge key. Yeah, for sure. That's what I've heard. You said something along the lines of you feel like indoor cultivating is better for the average person versus the outdoor. You feel that there's many different skill levels from, you know, just tossing a seed out and seeing what happens to becoming very skillful. You feel is actually much more challenging than possibly doing it indoors. I think they're both challenging. They both have levels. But what I was kind of thinking is like, you know, the average person can do a good indoor crop and get it going and produce quality. But then on the outside thing is the average person can just produce a crop and get quantity. But to get the outdoor to where the levels where it's really good, it just takes a while to get it down there. And it's the same thing with indoor too, but I don't know. I feel like outdoor is like, there really is, there's levels to it as far as the quality and, and it just keeps, you can tell when a grower has been doing it for a long time out, outside. When they're outdoor and light depth looks like inside weed, 
you can tell he's doing something right, you know, and then the potency sometimes can be better with the outdoor and light depth. I, I surprise people all the time with potency on that, but I like them both. You know, I think indoor is easier to do in a clean fashion. You know, you get cleaner flavors easier, but if you do outside right, you know, some of the terps that come off the sun, it's, it's hard to replicate inside as well, you know, and some, some of the potency and they're both awesome. And I like both. It's just, I kind of specialize in the, the outside and, and the depths more. You do run a little indoor living soil LED project though. What can you tell us about that? I mean, I don't do it enough to, I shouldn't be doing it more, but I, I love the LEDs, you know, they've, really come a long way and the the key lamp pie i did indoors it just it came out great as far as hash and rosin the potency i was happy with that so yeah i mean i just i like to do it because i still enjoy smoking flour from indoor stuff too i just i tend to do much better outside so that's why i focus on that but i, I enjoy being around indoor flour and just how pretty you can get it you know you can get it looking super duper pretty and it just depends on on the the strain some of them do better outside some do better inside i don't know what what else to say about the indoor situation but have you run any of your strains indoor and outdoor almost like a side-by-side let's see recently not really i guess the wedding cake would be the one I've done recently with that. And I did it inside and it came out pretty good. You know, I was impressed, but outside it did way better. It was crazy. But that was one example, I guess. The inside version was more citrusy, kind of had a, you know, like that citrus gas thing going on. And then the outside one was like, there wasn't any, any citrus. It was like gas. Way more gassy, cookie like the inside, and it was the same, same cut. It was crazy. Interesting. And do you wash any of the indoor stuff? Yeah, I washed that wedding cake, and I washed the key lime pie. I did last time, and that one came out pretty good. Super happy with that one. So, since you saw the melt on both that wedding cake from indoor and outdoor. And you said like the turp profiles were way different, but that you preferred the outdoor. Do you remember if the melt quality was better on the outdoor? Oh uh, yeah, the that flower was just better. It was a better depth. It just it wasn't a very big batch either. It was just like a couple plants. So I mean, I was able to harvest it really quickly and, and exactly when I wanted it. Yeah, I mean, I still have some of that flower in my freezer and it's like it stinks every time I open the freezer. So I think it just, for some reason, they'd liked it better outside that time. Yeah, it's always interesting to see those differences. And my soil outside is probably more dialed than my inside, for sure. You told me that you grow in big mounds and that in part you feel that's what's a little more forgiving with what you're giving them and using your intuition. Yeah, big mounds, big plants. That's kind of how I started. And it's harder to mess up big mounds, I feel like. But, you know, you still got to be on top of them. You got to water them a lot because they're so big. And then with my place being in the wetland, it can be tricky because the clay 
will wick the groundwater, which is extremely, I have extremely high water table here. So it will wick that and then it'll go into the mountains and then I have soggy feet and then my plants don't want to grow. So like right now, that could be the issue. So then I have to like drain my pond and then eventually it'll start drying out and they'll take off. But yeah, for a while there, it can be a challenge. I'm sure. Tell us a little bit about your trimming history. I think you started by liking it and now not so much. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, it's gone up and down. I started trimming back in 2011 for, or excuse me, 2010. And I worked for a grower for a couple of years and I just, I trimmed a ton of weed for him. And uh, so I, that, I really got to like it by doing it that way. It served me well in my future endeavors because obviously I had to trim a lot of weed as a grower. I've never not trimmed my weed. I just, I baby it so much. I got to like be around it, <laughs> but yeah. So I, I did that for a few years. And then once I started doing it by myself, I didn't have a problem trimming lots, lots of weed, but then year after year, after year, after more and more weed, my back started hurt bad. And I started to get like immediately after trimming for a while, my back would like start spasming and stuff. I don't really have that problem this last year. Cause I was, been doing what I was working on doing the martial arts so I think that helped a lot yeah so eventually I just started to like it less and less and then having to just do the whole process became a lot but now I mostly just do fresh frozen and so it's not so bad you know as long as we get a few guys and we're banging out so it's it's kind of a happy medium for me probably not going to be harvesting a ton of flour to trim anytime soon but <laughs> you know I definitely like to keep a little bit around. Fresh resin works out for me. Cool. I saw a post about, I think it was the Azure cherry, which was a plant that what was kind of curious about it was like, I think you said it didn't have much of a smell in flower, but after getting dried and cured, the smell really started coming out. Is that something that you see commonly? That one has a smell during flower, but I do think they sometimes change. And maybe, you know, when you press them out, as far as from drying to flower, it just depends, I guess, on the, yeah, I'm not sure. I'm not sure about that question. Are you still rocking the powers plates? Yeah, still got the powers. Never really had to upgrade since I've had those. They, do everything I need. Yeah, they rock. Cool. Yeah, they're the dudes that we've been rocking with for a couple of years. So I always like to show them some love. And I know that some of the local people out there rock them. So yeah, yeah. No, I've never had a problem with them ever. So yeah, I've been squished a lot of rosin with my powers plates. <laughs> That's always good to hear. Kind of a random question, but if you have high grade hash and not so high grade hash. Which one do you smoke through first? Oh, I smoke the high grade first. I only smoke the lower grade if I'm like just like barreling through my hash and then roll smoke too much hash, man. <laughs> Give it a relax a little bit. Then I'll smoke the other grades sometimes just to kind of slow my roll. Probably should just start doing my own individual batches that I don't have to worry about, you know, pulling from. 
But if I was to sit there and smoke off, smoke hash all the time, I can put a pretty big dent <laughs> in my <laughs> in my stash. If you had to choose, let's say, three favorite hash makers, who would those be? I'd probably have to say Brandon's one of my favorite, Kush Kirk. He's just a good dude, positive guy, makes great hash. Lately, also, I've been digging Zen Dog, another good dude, making great hash. And the third one, there's so many good hash makers. It's hard to say on that one. The only other one that's coming up in my mind right now is probably Pua. He uh, he helped me a lot in the beginning. I would always ask him questions, and he was super friendly and, and would would go back on with me because he was he was a little bit ahead of the game uh, before I was as far as making like good full melt. And uh, so he was always cool, had good vibes, and, and uh, I always appreciated that. So always liked that. Um, and he makes good hash. And, and does the Kenneth thing as well. So yeah, probably say those those guys. Cool, man. I appreciate that. Final question. If you could hear from someone on the podcast, who would it be? <laughs> have you uh have you done Dragonfly yet? No, I haven't spoken to them yet. That might be a good one to do. Josh and Kelly are both very knowledgeable people and I've gotten a lot of my information from growing from them. So I think that would probably be a good one. If you want to talk about breeding in hash, Mr. Spliff is a good one of cannabis. He's been on point with his breeding and I used a lot, a few of his strains for, for my work and he was super cool about that. Uh, who else? I was just thinking about the other day. I had another one. But off the top of my head, probably those two. I'm sure that after we get done, I'm like, oh, I should have said this and that. <laughs> I appreciate that. I think those are two good suggestions. But uh, yeah, man, I, I had a good time. Again, I appreciate you making the time to talk. Um, I had fun. Hopefully you did too. And yeah, is there anything else that you wanted to say before we sign off? No, no, I just appreciate you having me on, man. Just chill, hanging out with you and smoking some hash and talking. Yeah, really appreciate that. And- it's nice to, to hang. Cool. Yeah. Likewise, man. And for anybody who uh, hung around with us this long, we appreciate you checking it out. And we will catch you next time. Peace, guys. Thank you for listening to the Hashish Inn. If you like the podcast, we'd love for you to subscribe, rate, and give us a review. Until next time.